It's, it's Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 31. What should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike, all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their, th- their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God b- before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Um, Depending on your age, one of these names will be more apparent and appealing to you than the others in the list. So you can choose from your legal eagle, depending on which TV programme you may have watched. Perhaps it's Perry Mason. Remember him? If it's not Perry Mason, it might be in the 80s, L.A. Law. Now, there's a TV show with a great... I don't remember much of it. I remember it had a great soundtrack. Um, Coming forward, what about Ali McBeal? Um, Let's go to be topical, The Good Wife, or even Suits. All of these are TV programmes based in the field of the legal courtroom. This uh, full passage, as it was just described, it certainly is. The whole book of Romans is a full rich book but it's about law courts and it's about a legal setting and it's something that we need to get our handle on if we need to uh, correctly understand this book central to every episode is the case 
just as it is in a TV show, so it is in the book of Romans. There's always a case. There is evidence that's uh, presented by the prosecutor. There is someone who acts on behalf of the descendant. There's always, regardless of which country the TV show is set in, there is a, a window into the legal world that is very uh, enjoyable to watch when you're watching it on a TV screen or on a big screen in the cinema. It's not so comfortable if you have to go into the courtroom yourself. You may have been in a courtroom in your life, whether it's for a legal dispute perhaps with a partner at work, whether it's a one too many speeding fines that you need to have your wrist slapped. It might be something far more serious than that, that you've observed perhaps from the viewing gallery at the Old Bailey. But there's a great difference in watching a legal drama from the comfort of your sofa and feeling in the palm of your hand the oak wood and sitting your backside on a leather chair and hearing the uh, clear sound of the gavel as it falls on the wood as the verdict is given out. That's not so comfortable at that point when you're in the dock or even when you're in the courtroom and you're not sure what verdict will be passed. That's very uncomfortable to walk in the walls of a real courtroom. We're walking through this great masterpiece of the Apostle Paul. The legal world was not something that you only enter into when you're in trouble. 2,000 years ago in Paul's day and age, the legal sphere was very public, not private. You see, uh, when there was a case, it was tried in public. And communities were smaller, they were more intimate. So when someone was uh, having um, some evidence brought against them, everybody could know, everybody could attend, everybody could listen in if they wanted to. And Paul is using this legal framing to describe not an earthly courtroom, but a heavenly one. It's uh, four groups of people are in the... Uh, in the drama that we've seen unfolding, we've seen from um, chapter 1 through to chapter 3, this first big section of the book of Romans, Paul has got four groups of people in the dock. And the dock is getting fuller and fuller as he considers the evidence against different groups of people. We've seen there is a case to be made by God against all non-Jewish, that's Gentile people. It's in chapter 1. Chapter 2, if you're a religious person and you're thinking, really great children's talk, you're thinking you can make a ladder up to God by what you do, well, Paul says that's not going to work either. Chapter 2, the second half into chapter 3, what about if you're a Jewish person, God's favourite, favoured people? Will that help you get a leg up into heaven? No. Not if you just rely on your ethnic status as a badge of honour. That's not going to work. And now the dock is getting fuller as God presents the final piece of evidence, not against Jews or Gentiles. He says the whole human race, they're in the dock as well. And with the evidence being laid out in full, in perhaps the most graphic portion of the Bible when it comes to understanding the great problem with the human race. It comes down with all its complexity and richness and fullness to one word. What's the problem with the human race? What's the evidence that God has got to, uh, to show us, to count against us, as it were? In light of his holiness, it's our sin. This small word that the Bible says, this is the problem with the human race. 
This is why there's legal proceedings against the God of the whole cosmos and all of humanity are in the dark. God is prosecuting us. He's presenting the evidence. And he says, here's the problem. It's our sin. And that's what this passage is about before we hear about the cure. Sin can be described as as the great leveller. Sin is the great leveller. What do I mean? Look at uh, verse 9 and into verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul repeats the question that's asked in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Is there any benefit at all of being a Jewish person? And Paul makes this statement over and over again in verse 9, sentence number 9, and into sentence 10. He says, no one is righteous. No one has a perfect record before God. No one who understands, no one who seeks or looks or pursues God. And then in verse 9, he says the most amazing thing, if you know anything about Paul. He says, Jew and Gentile, verse 9 and verse 10, Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. He says, are we any better? No, not at all. We're all in the dark. No one can look down. Remember a couple of weeks ago, John Cleese, Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Corbett. No one can look down at anybody else to say, I'm better than them. I, am, I have less guilt than those people. No one can look down their noses at anybody else. Israel, as well as the Gentiles from chapter 1, they're in the dock too. It doesn't matter if you're an immoral person. It doesn't matter if you're a moral person. It doesn't matter if you're a secular person. It doesn't matter if you are a religious person. Everybody, the whole world, is in the dock. Verse 9, everybody is under sin. Verse 12, all. Everybody's there. Paul is using all these different descriptors to say the dock is full. It's not just one person. It's not one uh, lady or a man representing a company or a CEO for negligence. Everybody is in the dock. And God has a lot of evidence against each one of us. So what does that mean? Look down to sentence 19, the end of that first section. You scroll down to the bottom of that passage, verse 19. The whole world is held accountable to God. No one's left out. No one's having a really good day or a really great year and they get a leg up on anybody else. Everybody is in the dock. It's a, this led or held accountable, it's a judicial, legal word. You are liable for all the actions that you've committed, all the, the sins, the Church of England friends say, the sins of omission, the things you should have done, and the sins of commission, the sins you have done. Every act of disobedience is against you before a holy and a right God. Everybody stands condemned. Everybody is lost. Everybody deserves to be rejected by God. Now, how could that be? I mean, haven't we had one or two good days in our lives? Romans 2 says it does not matter how you look on the outside. It doesn't matter how respectable you look. It doesn't matter where you shop. It doesn't matter which country you live in even. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter if you've been a really generous person, a really compassionate person, someone that served in a certain way in the community. For all our external goodness, God has x-ray vision and he can see right into our hearts. That's what chapter 2 is about. And being religious, being good, being respectable, living in Surrey, come on. It doesn't matter. We're in the dock. We're all alike. 
And there's this big issue that the Bible says, and it holds up the mirror to ourselves, and it says it's an issue of the heart. We are radically self-centered. We are totally self-absorbed. The Bible defines sin as being curved in upon ourselves. God is rightly on the throne of the cosmos, but we want to knock him off, and that's not enough. We want to put ourselves on the throne. We think we'd do a better job. It's an uprising that began in Genesis chapter 3 with our first parents. And Paul has the audacity to say, all of us are alike. Don't look down on anybody else. It's not about external obedience. In our hearts, we are rotten to the core. It's radical leveling out because of our sin. Two quick implications. What does this mean? When people come in and, so to speak, kick the tires of Christianity, they think it's like a, a spiritual process where there is a way of discovery. There is a, a good life that we need to discover and there's a bad life that we need to put off. There is a certain way of living that will give us a leg up to please God and there are certain practices that would give us a demerit against God. It's the kind of life that we're going to put off and put on in our own strength. And this is saying not at all. It's not a matter of starting to live a certain way and stopping to live another way. It's not a matter of a, us creating a ladder up to heaven. It would never, ever work. Spiritually speaking, we're all lost. We're in the same place. But it's more than that. It's a great leveler. Here's the second implication. Let's just say you've embraced Christianity. Let's say you've become a Christian recently. Do you realize the radicalness of verse 9? Verse 9 says, are we any better? Paul is speaking of himself. He's not looking down on anybody else. Paul, if you know anything about him, he was uh, one of the most obedient men who ever lived. He knew God's Bible back to front. He was upright. He was morally pure. He was dedicated and he was devoted to God. He understood the principles of the Bible and sought to live them out. He was a Pharisee. He was someone that was so passionate about keeping God's word that he sought to keep lots of other rules, one for every day of the year, to, to honour God. He could have looked down his nose at the non-Jewish people. He did that before he became a Christian. But he says... Are we, am I, he puts himself in the shoes, am I any better than those Gentiles? Before he was a Christian, he would have called them heretics. He would have called them dogs. He would have called them idolaters. And yet Paul, the apostle Paul says, am I any better than those people? By no means. We are equal in our lostness. When you understand what the Puritans called, the doctrine, the Puritans were a group of people about 200 years ago who got a real firm grasp on the Bible. And they rediscovered this idea that we are sinful, we are rebels from the minute we're born. We're not born good and then go bad. We are rotten to the core from our mother's womb. It's called total depravity. That is a precious truth because it doesn't dehumanize people. It actually rehumanizes people. Here's Paul, he looked down on people, these Gentile dogs, and he says, no, 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 when you understand that all of us have fall short of the glory of God, there's no good in our hearts, it actually rehumanizes people to on the level. Friends, don't look down on people. We touched on this last uh, week or so. Sin, when correctly understood, is a great rehumanizing factor because we're all lost. We're all in the dock together. 
No superiority. No looking down your nose at anybody. Because sin is a great leveler. But Paul goes on to the meat of this passage, and it gets harder. The scope of sin. If sin is a leveler, sin is also, it's, it's just completely, the scope is huge. And it begins with these two facts to say sin has a direction. Sin is a complete in its scope. It's a totality in our body. And sin, though, begins with a, with a direction. Sin goes deep. What do I mean? Look at verse 12. The word turn is there. All have turned away. Look at the sentence before, verse 11. The word seek is there. It's a looking, it's a pursuing word. There is no one who seeks God. Turn, seek. You could substitute in pursue. No one pursues God. No one turns and pursues God for who he is. Sin is described in a whole host of ways in the Bible. There is the the traditional understanding of of an archer taking their aim and they miss the mark. That's, That's an appropriate understanding of what sin is. But there are other images that we need to grapple with as well. Here, we're told that that sin is turning away from. Sin is walking away from, turning your back, turning 180 degrees from one direction to another. You're not seeking God for who he is. We're seeking something or someone else. Sin is turning away from God so that you're away from his gaze. Sin is turning away from God so you're away from his control. Because deep down, each one of us thinks that we are good enough and able enough to be our own saviour. We want to keep God at arm's length. We want control. And so we're threatened by when we come face to face with the God of the Bible. Because we don't want to seek him, we want to turn away from him. It's like uh, if you've done something naughty when you're young, the one person you don't want to see is your parents' eyes. And so you turn away and go the other way. You're a bit older, you're now in school, you know that you shouldn't be smoking behind the bike sheds. Someone comes, they say, quick, teacher's coming, and you go the other way, the longer way around, back to your classroom. Now you're an adult. You see a policeman coming, you see a speed camera car that they've cunningly put by the side of the road. What do you do? You hit the brakes. Maybe you go the other way. Because we don't like or love authority. And it's exactly the same, Paul is saying, when it comes to sin, taking God off of his throne and putting ourselves in his place. Verse 11, no one seeks God. And to make a sandwich down in verse 19, did you notice this is another sermon for another day? No one fears God. That's another handle on what it means to to be someone who pursues our own glory and fame and renown rather than God's. We're more concerned about building our little kingdom than pursuing God's. We're more um, content with pride rather than humility. And whether it's the Psalms or the Proverbs, whether it be the prophets, wisdom is taking God's word and living it out. And that begins with the fear of the Lord. This is not knee-knocking, sort of tongue-jarring fear. Sometimes that's appropriate. This is awe and reverence because of his love of the security of his promises sometimes we read of people trembling before a holy god and that's completely appropriate but it's loving god for his holy fear it's loving god for his holy love and putting those two things together but that's another sermon for another day 
Sin is directional. It's turning away from God. But then the scope continues. Sin is also all-pervasive. It begins in verse 13. Here, Paul creates, by quoting from the Psalms and other Old Testament passages, a patchwork quilt of sentences that describes the all-encompassing nature of our sinfulness. Look at the, uh, the way our organs are used. It, sin affects our whole body, verse 13. Rather than speaking words of truth and love, how are our throats speaking? It's like the morgue. It's like a cemetery. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues don't speak truth. What do they do? They practice deceit. When we speak, our words sometimes, sadly, are full of hatred, designed to wound. Our mouths are full of swear words and cursing and bitterness. Instead of walking peacefully with other people, just look at history, but then think personally, just think of the last week. Instead of walking in peace, verse 15 says, our feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. It's a gruesome picture of sin affecting a whole person. Remember on the outside, the orange looks completely whole and healthy, but when you cut it, it's full of rottenness. Remember the oak tree, on the outside it looks like it's in good shape, but the tree surgeon comes and chops it down because it's a risk, because it's rotten on the inside. And Paul says, that's our hearts. We look respectable, but if we had uh, an MRI, if we had uh, exposure of our hearts and motives, we're not respectable, we don't look very sorry at all. To God, we are offensive. It's a bit like the night of the living dead to God because of our sinfulness. That's the extent of our sin. It's a direction, but it's also all-encompassing. Underneath all our doing good, underneath all our attendance, all our giving to charity, all the things we do to try and honor our parents, to, to pray, to read, actually in our hearts, we don't speak peacefully. We think of how we can get our own way. We don't speak truthfully or kindly. There are harsh and hard words. Just think of how you and I speak to the ones we love, let alone our enemies. Think of how we use our tongues just in the last few days. There's touchiness and the kind of bristliness. There's ways to get our own back on people that have hurt us. And those are just the ones we love, let alone our work colleagues that are kind of hard, let alone people that we don't like, let alone people that have crossed me. And here's an opportunity just with my tongue to get my own back, to make things even. Speech is so powerful to build people up, but so often I use it to knock people down and to wound, not to heal. And Paul's saying sin is a direction. Sin is all-encompassing. Just look at the way the body is described. Mouth, throat, feet, all-encompassing. So what's the appropriate response? Verse 19. When this evidence is presented to you in the dock by the prosecutor who's God, how should we respond? Verse 19 says, every mouth may be silenced. There's a lot of ink kind of written on that sentence. Someone's helped me this week to say, I think it means very simply this. Often the answer is simple, not complicated. In the ancient world 2,000 years ago, where there are law courts in public, when 
to indicate that you'd finished speaking, you would put your hand in front of your mouth to say, I've got nothing more to say. If it was a clear-cut case where it's clear as day that you were guilty, but you would try to justify yourself, sometimes another member of the court would come and physically put their hand across your mouth so that you say, enough, you're guilty, don't try and justify yourself. And I think that's the image Paul is using here. We are guilty. And yet we try and justify ourselves. I would do it differently if I had the chance again. Yeah, just one more chance and I would do it this way, not that way. That's not what I meant to say. No, what we should say is forgive me for saying exactly what I meant. Paul says, enough. There's no way you can justify yourself. John Gerstner, who, who writes on the Bible, says, That's the darkness of this passage. But then the tone changes in verse 21. We are guilty. There is no hope for us to ourselves. We are going down for a long time. But then he says this, the way to God is now wide open. God has offered justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. But most people don't have nothing. They say, look at the good things I've done. And this passage says, actually, the appropriate response when you feel the weight of our own worthiness is to shut up and to be silent before a holy God. We've got nothing Nothing to present to God apart from our own sin. All you need is nothing. Verse 19 says, before God, because of who we are, because of how our heart has been described in verses 11 to 18, there should be silence in court. You should be able to hear a pin drop. But then the silence is broken in verse 21. Now we can look at the cure. That's a disease. We are rotten to the cure. Here is... The cure. Now, there are a lot of films that have a similar thread. It gets kind of a, there's hope at the beginning, then the hope is dashed, and it gets dark and moody, and there's oppression, and then there's a moment towards the end of the film when Superman flies in and saves the the heroine from the oil tanker that's about to crush her. Or the cowboys on their horseback, they ride into town, and they drive out the wicked sheriff who's called Tyranny, Or you have Robin Hood, who with one shot, as he he closes one eye, pulls back the arrow and uh, saves the man from the noose of the awful sheriff of Nottingham. Or there's Gandalf the White, who appears on the third day. Now, I wonder who he points to. And he comes in and saves the people of Helm's Deep, just as he said he would, the two towers. A lot of films and theatre and books have that hero who comes in who makes a big entrance, who makes a big sound in the orchestra as the cymbals come and smash together. But that's what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. Other religions say, we seek out God. If you try hard, you can find him. You can build a ladder with your own effort. God sits there passively. Here are the rules that you need to just follow, and then you can work your way towards him. You can't find him, he will find you. That's the message and the difference of the gospel. Religions say salvation is us finding God. Christianity comes in and says no. It's God riding in on the third day. 
literally. It's God being raised from the grave three days after he died for the sins of the world, historically. And that's why I want us to read these verses again. Verse 21. You can hear a pin drop in the court, and then verse 21 says this, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We're in the dock. There is no hope. There is silence. We are guilty. And then we read verse 21, but now. Let me tell you a story of a book of the Bible that means a great deal to me. I was spiritually very dry. God felt very far away from me. And God led me to the book of Hosea. It's a wonderful story that explains in Old Testament language the words we've just read in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. There was once a man called Hosea. He was the prophet of God. And God said to him, Hosea, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go and marry a lady called Goma. And because he was obedient, unlike Jonah, Hosea said, okay, I will go and I will marry her. I will take her as my wife. Very quickly, it became apparent to Hosea that Goma was unfaithful. She had quick feet to walk away from home. And she began to have children as she was sexually unfaithful to her husband. Hosea is not stupid. He recognized that they're not his children. And he gave them very poignant names, Hosea chapter 1. One of the names is so pertinent that he calls one of the children that she gives birth to, not mine. Finally, her unfaithfulness gets worse and worse and worse, and she leaves home. She goes to uh, sleep with other men, other lovers, one man after another, after another. She gets what she deserves because she's so faithless, she's breaking every promise, and she's a liar until the last man she sleeps with sells her into slavery. And then Hosea speaks to God again. In the desert, they have a conversation as Hosea's heart is rightly broken. Remind me, God, why you asked me to marry her of all women? And God says, in the quietness of the desert... So you will know something about my relationship to you. You will know what it's like to have my heart broken by your actions every day. God says you will know through your actions what it's like to be me. Here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go to where she's being bid on. I want you to go and see your wife and I want you to buy her back. I want you to take her back. And so he crossed town with a, 
credit card that was uh, almost on its limit. And he saw his covenant wife, who would have been naked, and people would be bidding upon her. And in her shame, he buys her back. It cost her all he had. You can imagine tears running down her face as well as his as her husband bids for her and for her freedom. I wonder what she thought as she went home with her husband. Is he going to berate me? Is he going to beat me? What's he going to do? But instead of that, he takes off his cloak and he covers her nakedness, her nudity. And he says, I want you to come home with me and I want you to be my wife again. And I forgive you and I love you and I've brought you back with all I have. Now that is a moving story and it's a true story. Hosea chapter 1, 1 through to Hosea chapter 3, verse 6. You don't even have to read the whole book to get the story. But that is a moving story that points forward to Jesus, friends, who did even more than Hosea did. Here's the one to whom Hosea points to. Hosea, well, he had to go across a few city streets. He had to go past a lot of twitching curtains. Isn't that Hosea, whose wife, well, we know what she's done. He had to endure the scorn. He had to endure the suspicion. He had to dig deep into his pockets to purchase his unfaithful wife. But what did Jesus do from these sentences? But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. How did Jesus buy us back? It wasn't with a credit card. It wasn't with a few silver coins. It was with his life. When you see that, that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, when Jesus says, they are my people in the dock, I've died for everybody who trusts me, I was stripped naked for them, I endured the shame that they deserved, I took the punishment that every single sin deserved, it was taken on me, and I will clothe them with my righteousness. When you see that, and hear the words from the voice of God. Come home with me, you're mine. I know what you've done and I love you. When you see that, you understand the gospel for the first time. And your silence before a holy God is replaced by worship, I trust. When you see that, your self-justifying comments should stop. And verse 24 of Romans 3, you can see that we are justified by God's grace. And when you see that, the fact that we are rotten to the core in our sin, like that rotten apple, like that oak tree, well, then you'll see that sin is all pervasive, but then you'll know that the cure is just about to begin.